We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. That's what I call science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. We would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are gathering to record this episode. We recognise the ongoing contributions that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are making to the sciences. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast that brings you independent and we hope interesting science, technology, engineering and maths content from Tasmania. My name is Neve Chapman and I'm joined by my co-host Kelsey Pickard and today our guest is Dipon Sarkar. Um, so today we're going to be talking all about the science of fermentation and the cool ways we use fermentation to make food and drinks with our guest who's actually interested in food safety and microbiology uh, from the University of Tasmania. So Kelsey, what made you pick this topic? Well, I am super interested in this craze that seems to be happening while everyone's working from home of making sourdough and fermenting products and um, all that cool stuff. So Dupont is a microbiologist, which is a biologist of tiny things, and he works at the Tasmanian Institute of Agriculture, or otherwise known as TIA. Um, and Dupont's PhD relates to my bigger, one of my biggest loves in life, which is cheese. Yeah, that's a pretty big love. Do you get to eat a lot of cheese, Dupont? Uh, sadly, no. No. <laughs> How can you research um, something so delicious and not eat it? Um, I put stuff that makes uh, makes us sick into the cheese. So eating it would not be a very good idea. Oh, so you put bacteria that's likely to like cause food poisoning and stuff into the cheese. I'm, I put bacteria that makes us sick uh, into the cheese and I see how fast they grow or how slow they grow. So you can, can you tell us um, a bit about yourself and what got you interested in this kind of science? Sure. Um, so I was born uh, in the city of Calcutta in India. Mm-hmm. And um, if uh, that what got me interested in science was the human body, the first thing that interested me. Um, this was probably when I was 10, 12 years old, when I wanted to become a medical practitioner and figure out the mysteries of the body and cure every disease in the world. Um, anyone been on that boat before? Uh, so slowly, uh, slowly other things got me interested and I ended up doing biotechnology in uni. Um, food science was never an active decision. It was more that I was seeing myself eat food, think about food, cook food all the time, um, and slowly started working on food too. Um, and that's how food science came, came to my career, I guess. How did you end up working on paneer in particular? So uh, when we before starting the PhD, we were uh, thinking of what to a product that that is massly produced and and consumed, but yet but not yet very uh, very heavily studied. Um, and paneer takes all those boxes because like more than hundred million tons of the product is produced in India alone, and there's heaps of heaps of people making it at home uh, all around the world. Uh, commercial commercially, it's it's made in different countries in the world, but we know very little about what's going on in the product actually. So we thought of addressing that gap and trying to find out what happens. I actually don't know very much about paneer, but I have seen it in some recipes. So I, I'm assuming because you study cheese, paneer is a cheese. 
Um, what yes. type of a cheese is it? Can you try and describe? Like, is it like a brie or is it like tofu? I know tofu is not a cheese, but I have seen paneer in recipes mm. where you would usually use tofu. So can you tell us a little bit about it as a product and try and make it really descriptive so our listeners get a feel for what we're talking about? Yeah, sure. Um, so paneer uh, was my favorite cheese growing up uh, because the cheese eating culture isn't that big in India. If I want to describe it, it looks like uh, ricotta, pressed ricotta, but it is it is not as salty as, uh, as ricotta. It's very fluffy. It's very mushy. Um, it falls under the category of fresh cheese. It's not actually, there's actually no bacteria in it that makes the cheese. It's just made with lemon juice or vinegar to uh, curdle the milk. In terms of texture, I'd say it's closer to tofu. In terms of taste, it's a bit like cottage cheese, but not as uh, not as salty. I guess, does your research come into play when people are making this paneer at home in their own kitchens? Are they accidentally introducing bad bacteria into the cheese? Is that the problem? It's not only at home, but it's also in the production level. Like Bacteria is everywhere, uh, all around us. There's good ones and there's bad ones. And bad ones often, often contaminate our food. And if we don't make our food properly, then it grows to levels that will make us sick or even at, point, at times kill us. So we need to know what these points are, uh, where can we introduce bad bacteria in it, and what makes them grow in our food, and what can we do to stop it. We can store them in the fridge, don't leave them in the on the counter for a long time, and if we do leave them on the counter, how much time do we have, how much, like, what's that safety period? So that's what uh, my research addresses for Paneer. Thanks, Devon. So stay tuned with us for more in just a moment, where we'll be talking a little bit more in detail about how Devon investigates cheese. You're listening to That's What I Call Science and today we're talking about food science. My name is Kelsey and I'm joined by Neve Chapman along with our expert guest Dupon Sakar from the University of Tasmania. So Dupon, you're the kind of scientist that wears a white lab coat, you're in a laboratory, can you tell us what a typical day in the lab looks like for you? I work in two labs. One is the microbiology lab, where we are not allowed to eat anything, where we work with things that makes you sick. Um, and one is the food lab, where we actually get, which is basically a glorified kitchen, uh, where we make food and we can actually eat and taste the food. So I make the cheese in the food lab and take whatever I need for my experiments up to the micro lab. You can't taste, uh, touch or taste that food, but I do sometimes have uh, extra extra paneer that I give away to my colleagues bring back home to eat and in the in the micro lab i grow grow up bacteria that makes us really really sick put it into the paneer and study it in different conditions of temperature and what if i pack it what if i don't pack it what happens to the bacteria so you mentioned there are good and bad bacteria in food how can you make sure you have the right kinds growing and what's the difference between a good and a bad bacteria in this context the definition of good and bad bacteria is totally what they do to humans if, if a bacteria is doing something good for us, we call it a good bacteria. If something, if they're doing something bad or harmful to us, 
we call it a bad bacteria. Um, it's kind of an unfair categorization for the poor bacteria, to be honest. They're just living. But most of the bacteria are actually harmless. They're floating around, all around us, in our in the water, in our in our air, in in our houses, and they don't do anything to us. So we live with millions of bacteria uh, around us and inside us, which fall under the big the biggest category of bacteria. I'd say is harmless bacteria. And what about probiotics? The probiotics seem to be a real buzzword in the health food area. What are these and what do they do? So probiotics are the king of good good bacteria. They do a they heap of things that are that help us digest food, that help us digesting stuff that we would not be able to digest ourselves. They also help from the bad bacteria growing in our stomach and making us sick. But in order for the bacteria to be classified as probiotic, it has to be delivered into our body as a living organism. So we can't really eat eat a de- dead bacteria and say that it's probiotic. That's why all these capsules or Yakult or all these probiotic drinks actually have living microorganisms in it. And we, we drink it or eat it and we, we, we start living in our stomach. That's really interesting. I didn't realize that that was the definition or that that was why we don't consider yeast a probiotic. This might be a little bit outside your field, but so you study bacteria, how they relate to food before we digest it. But does the bacteria in food, you know, does it change as we digest it? Because obviously we have a lot of enzymes or different ways that our body processes food and like acid in our stomach. So surely what's on the food when we eat it or in it is very likely to be different to even what reaches our large intestine. Yes, that's that's exactly what happens because like our stomach is actually a very harsh environment. Um, it's the pH of our stomach is really low. So a lot of things actually die when we eat it. That's one of our first defense mechanisms, but it's also a probability. If a large amount of bacteria enters our stomach, then there's a high chance that they will survive uh, that harsh environment and reach our large intestine. Also, the bacteria sometimes produce toxins, which even if the bacteria dies, the toxins will stay alive. And that's what they're actually actually makes us sick. So the stomach can't kill the toxin or can't destroy the toxin. So does the problem really happen from our perspective if you were going to get what we would commonly associate with like food poisoning or bacterial associated food mm-hmm. poisoning? Does that do those symptoms or issues really arise after the bacteria has made it through the stomach and into the intestines and then it probably has quite a nice environment where it's warm and toasty. They probably have lots of <laughs> things that they can feed on to divide. So is that really where the problem yeah. starts? They start to proliferate or essentially multiply themselves and grow and make little bacteria families in the intestine? Yes, um, that's one way that they make us sick. But the other way they make us sick is also by producing toxins. So some bacteria, um, even while they're in the, in the food, they make these toxins which are basically small proteins and uh, they exist in the food. Some some of these toxins are really heat stable and acid stable and don't die when we cook the food or when we digest it in our stomach and they reach our intestine. The bacteria is dead; it's long gone, maybe, but the toxin is still alive, and that toxin actually makes us sick. How can we make sure that we're avoiding getting sick from our food? Do you have any tips of how to best practice food safety? Wash your hands properly. It not only works for COVID, but it works for that's probably one of the 
simplest and most effective food safety uh, interventions is washing our hands because we have heaps of bacteria in our hands and we carry it from whatever we are touching throughout the day. Um, so if we wash our hands properly and if we cook the food that's meant to be cooked at the proper temperature using a thermometer while cooking. So the whole point of the thermometer is that we ensure that a particular temperature is uh, achieved during cooking and that temperature a scientist a researcher like me has studied bacteria in the lab for hours to see that that temperature is what kills all the bacteria and and helps us not get sick. Right. I like that. Bring some science into the kitchen. <laughs> yeah, people can do science right at home. It's like a little experiment. Every time you cook a meal, have you reached the right temperature? So you're listening to That's What I Call Science. My name's Neve Chapman. I'm joined with Kelsey Pickard and Dipon Sarkar. We're talking about food safety and microbiology. And in just a moment, we'll be delving into this topic in a little bit more detail. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and we are talking all about microbiology, food science, and food safety. My name's Kelsey Picard, and I'm joined by Neve Chapman and our special guest, Dupon Sakar. So, Dupon, I'm really excited to talk to you about some of my favourite foods um, and drinks made from fermentation. But first, can you tell us, what is fermentation? Fermentation is the way that bacteria breed. It basically breaks down uh, the glucose and other carbohydrates and produces, in some cases, Acid, in some cases uh, alcohol and but in all the cases energy that the bacteria then uses to live and grow so this is how fermentation is defined biochemically but essentially how we use it is fermentation is the oldest known preservation technique that we know and we use this thing that the bacteria does and we use it to preserve our food for a long long time we've been doing it before fridges existed wow that's that's I've never thought of fermentation from that perspective that it's actually preserving our food through production of acids and alcohols I've always thought of it as almost like controlled spoilage because you know you're adding bacterias um, good bacterias that will create the end product that you're looking for like a sauerkraut or um, alcohol if you're making beer but I never thought about it as preservation that's cool I suppose it's kind of you could think about it both ways though like yes we've used it to preserve and traditionally like if you look at sauerkraut or even jams or like pickled uh, pears or one of those really random pickled things. Like they're actually quite ancient. They're they're old, and it's because um we didn't used to have like cooling facilities or like when you did an old school cool room was actually just under a house or something like that. So we had very limited ability to have controlled environments to store our food in um compared to now. Like if you actually think about it, we've like you were saying earlier, we can all do science at home. Well, we've got lots of very controlled environments at home, actually, compared to what we used to have. So I think you could look at fermentation in both ways. It's either transforming food, like I love making um, pizza dough. So and I always love watching the, the yeast start to bubble when you add it to like the hot water, maybe a little bit of sugar. And it's like it's transforming this really boring water into something like really magnificent that's going to make me some really cool dough. Um, But also it's either transforming or or preserving because it, it is quite different after you use fermentation to preserve food like it's not it's, you wouldn't say it's, it's, it's the same product because even the taste and flavor and texture is usually all quite different it's a really fascinating process so, um Dipon, i have one question about like so fermentation is like the the breakdown or the change of an organic matter by a microorganism or like bacteria or something so do they usually 
break down some of the food? Like what is it? Do we have to give them something that they use as that substrate or that thing that they're breaking down or, or are they breaking down like the bad bacteria bits of the food? Um, they're just breaking down the sugars that are the, so carbohydrates that are present in the food. Um, so in case of beer, they're breaking down the, uh, in, we produce, we give them sugar in the malt. Um, in kombucha, we just add sugar. Um, in, uh, in bread, there's heaps of carbohydrates in the dough. Uh, so that's what they break down. And in the process, they produce the alcohol and or the carbon dioxide. Um, which gives us the, and heaps of other organic, organic compounds that gives us the flavor profile of these foods. That's really cool. There seems to be a big craze at the moment of people making their own sourdough at home, so sourdough bread. Um, can you tell us how sourdough differs from other bread? Like, why is this one so special? Oh, um, this is, uh, currently my most favorite topic, to be honest. Um, <laughs> so, um, Sourdoughs have existed for a long, long time. Uh, we've been making bread for 5,000, 6,000 years. Uh, but um, what most of us know now, like currently, is making bread with instant yeast. Mm-hmm. We, what we forget is instant yeast was discovered about 150 years ago by Louis Pasteur, um, like I think 1860s. And it was commercially produced uh, 20, 30 years later. But we used to make bread even before that. How did we make it? It was sourdough. It was all sourdough. Um, so that's, and in, before commercial yeast was used, we knew inherently how to get, how to harvest yeast. And that, that's these sourdough cultures that we use that smell horrible, <laughs> but do an amazing thing. Mm-hmm. So these sourdough cultures are basically, um, yeast and uh, a group of bacteria that's called lactic acid bacteria and together they help transform the dough into this amazing bread that we call sourdough and later we figured that yeast alone can make bread and uh, we we isolated it and we put it into sachets that we then uh, used to make bread and that's yeast bread but they are very very different uh, in terms of flavor profile in terms of um, what is actually happening in the bread, just because one has only yeast and the other one has, uh, and only one type of yeast, and the other one has probably a few types of yeast and lactic acid bacteria in it. So how do they differ in the way that the bread is made? So you said the flavor profile is different, and I think most of us can agree that like a sourdough has like a bit more of like a tangy flavor to it. Like it's just... It's very different to plain white bread, but how does it also differ in its profile? Because I think, doesn't it usually have those bigger holes and stuff? So I'm assuming the science while it's baking actually is different. So um, lactic acid bacteria is the reason why uh, the doughs are tangy, because as the name suggests, these bacteria produces lactic acid. Um, which is a very sour, tangy molecule. And that's what gives sourdough its tangy flavor. And we don't have any, the instant yeast or the, that, or baker's yeast that we use to make normal bread, bread doesn't have that lactic acid bacteria. So there's no lactic acid being produced in that bread. 
so it doesn't it isn't tangy but another thing that's uh, another thing that's very important is um there's another uh one of the most important there's another big component in uh wheat that's called phytic acid and our bodies cannot break down phytic acid um like it doesn't have the enzymes to break it down so when we eat bread the phytic acid in the bread also binds to other micronutrients in the bread like iron and calcium and since it's in the bound bound form we cannot digest all these things so we're eating a lot but we are not actually digesting a lot but um in a sourdough the lactic acid bacteria which is the extra thing actually has the enzyme that breaks down phytic acid so it's called phytase and so it breaks down the uh, phytic acid in the in the dough and makes makes all these nutrients available for us to digest so in terms of digestibility and nutritional content the sourdough is much higher than uh, a normal yeast bread just because of the lactic acid what's the lactic acid bacteria is doing in it That's really fascinating. I didn't know that we had a part of bread that we couldn't digest and that we can digest it in sourdough. Just to come back to like the the holes that you get in dough. They've been really fascinating me lately because I like making pizza dough and I've been struggling to make really nice chewy pizza dough that has those like really large gaps in it. Can you tell me a little bit about what they are because you can get them in just plain white bread as well that you haven't made with sourdough are they part of just the like the gluten or are they part of like the air introducing like what actually makes those or if that's if this isn't if this is more chemistry than microbiology that's totally fine um probably the the gluten part is more chemistry but essentially those holes are the carbon dioxide that is being produced by uh the yeast and the lactic acid bacteria during during fermentation and since the dough is this solid structure those those things can't escape for a while and they create these air bubbles that we then get as the as the holes in the bread and the cheese and makes bread uh squishy so i'm completely sold on the idea of making sourdough i have to be honest i've never made it myself um What do we need to make a starter culture? How can we make a starter culture at home? It can be as simple as just flour and water. Um you can use different types of flour. You can use rye, you can use wholemeal, you can use simple white. As long as the flour is unbleached, you can use it to uh use it to make sourdough culture. The more stuff you put in it, the more complex your starter is. So I've heard of making starter cultures with your bare hands so Um I have this book at home that I've opened and quickly shucks it seemed way too complicated but people are convincing mm. me that I should be making my sourdough so it says that you add flour and water and then you're supposed to mix it with your bare hands and the, the natural yeasts and bacteria that are in the air and on your hands will be introduced into the culture Oh this is like this is a very very interesting topic and a lot of research is being done here um uh so actually the the major the major component the major contributor of the bacteria in the culture is actually the flour uh then it air there is a lot of debate whether the water actually uh water gives some bacteria and yeast but evidence suggests that's very very little contribution the majority of it comes from flour uh then air then the hands also cont- contribute a lot so 
there's a very very nice experiment that was done i think 2 3 years ago uh by this american um scientist and they they called 15 top bakers from all over the world gave them a uh, one starter recipe gave them all the ingredients that came from one place and asked them to make the make bread and they all made bread in their own way they made their starters their own way and then microbiologists came in and tested everything that they from the flour the water the air their hands and the final bacteria in the bread and they found that hands actually do contribute a lot especially for bakers who are spending so much time um there's so much time with their hands in the flour so they exchange both both the flour contributes some bacteria to our hands and the hands also give some flour to the starter uh, some bacteria to the starter so this is a really interesting experiment um i think you can find it at uh, fermentology lab they have a they have a whole podcast of their own that's really interesting particularly that um you'd probably want to make sure you wash the bad bacteria off your hands before you start introducing it to your starter so that's all we've got time for today though folks so uh, thanks for listening to that's what i call science we love bringing you science related content and hope you enjoyed the show if you did enjoy it please get in touch with us on social media searching that science tars on facebook instagram and twitter my name is neve chapman i'd like to thank my co-host kelsey pickard and our expert guest dipon sarko thanks very much folks and goodbye